Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig. And today is our first episode of the saving grace of the year 2021. But we're already seven days in, as most people will say, uh, by the time we record this podcast. And a lot of people are already regretting their free seven-day trial of 2021 coming off of 2020. But this episode is going to change all this. And so today we wanted to really tackle something that comes up a lot when we are looking at uh, physicians coming out of the residency or direct care practices, or even talking about employment scenarios. And that is all the, the, I'll call it the myriad number of legal complications that can arise from contracts, uh, employment, and what you can and can't do in the course of insurance, direct care, or Medicare-based practices. So to help me out with this conversation, we're welcoming Ike Willett and Steve Lokengarden from Fagri, Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having Thanks. us. Now we're going to dive right into it because the legal environment uh, dealing with the direct care world is something that is nebulous, to say the least. And now coming off of a new administration, uh, taking office very, very soon, who knows what the future is going to hold for us? We've seen a little bit of opinions back and forth, but for this episode, what I really want to start is a physician's journey. And so they're going to medical school and they go to residency and then they get towards the end of residency and they get a lot of job offers. Hopefully, you know, people are, are desiring them. We get questions a lot of, you know, what are in these job offers? What are these contracts? What can I push back on? What is not okay? What's going to, you know, potentially get me fired or get this agreement withdrawn? So, that's where I want to start is what are some things that some early career physicians need to watch out for when it comes to anti-competitive uh, language or just really the employment contracts in general? Well, I'll kick this one off and Steve, you feel free to jump in as you, uh, as you like. Um, you know, I think in a very kind of lawyerly way to you know, start this answer is, is um, the answer is kind of, it depends. Right. Um, so in one of the things that might depend on is in terms of how much negotiation latitude you have and things of that nature um, is who's the employer, right? Um, a large health system that has a, you know, a well-developed form of employment agreement that they try to use for um, their doctors across the various specialties that they, you know, have, may have uh, employed doctors for, you know, likely will be less, willing to negotiate on some, on, on the document kind of on a wholesale basis might be some things that kind of, uh, on the kind of some certain key points that they might be willing to discuss, but, uh, you know, they uh, might not want to move, you know, substantially off of, uh, this kind of form of employment agreement that they try to keep, you know, most of their doctors on. On the other hand, if you're joining a, uh, independent group, there could be, you know, uh, more latitude there. Um, and, and I think, you know, I've seen independent physician groups, um, you know, agree to things in order to recruit uh, new physicians or to, you know, help their ability to obtain talent. Um, you know, that, that shows, you know, a, a pretty substantial amount of flexibility. Um, you mentioned non-competes. I mean, that, that certainly includes on the independent 
group side, a willingness to negotiate on non-competes, whether it's negotiating um, the length or um, geographic scope um, over which the non-compete applies or willingness to maybe contemplate specific exceptions to non-competes. I, I think that's a harder sell with a health system, but um, it's something that I would encourage a physician to have open dialogue with, with any employer that they're thinking about uh, joining. You know, make sure you understand what all the terms of the contract are, but particularly the ones that might restrict you from being able to go work somewhere else at the end of your employment and you know, your, your compensation provisions and things of that. You, know, you know, have a full understanding about what your rights and, and obligations are under the agreement and you know, have, a full, um, have an opportunity to talk about you know, those concepts with the uh, person who's offering the contract and, and, and you know, just have a good open discussion about things that you, know, you may be concerning to you. Yeah, Ike, on the on the non-compete issue, one thing I've heard from physicians who have asked me to review it, I, I ask them about a non-compete and they say, well, Dr. So-and-so told me that we all have to have these non-competes in there, but they don't really enforce them. And so it's not that big of a deal for this group. And I laugh and I say, yeah, well, Dr. So-and-so might not be the head of the group when you want to leave. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's a reason why you're agreeing to these contracts. So I, I know everything seems great right now. And this seems like a great group of physicians to practice with, but you know, we really need to take this seriously. And so for non-competes, there's usually language about a radius, how far out the non-compete extends. Is it five miles, 10 miles from the practice site? It is it five or 10 miles from every practice site that this clinic has a location? You know, just pay attention to that. If you want to have an out down the road, you know, how far is it that you'd have to travel to get another job to uh, work somewhere else? So radius is one, time period is one. You know, a lot of systems have a one year as a minimum. I've seen contracts with two years now asking for two years. So to the extent you can negotiate that, great. I've had a lot of questions about enforceability. And it is kind of a nationwide initiative to try and go to state legislatures and make non-compete provisions unenforceable as against physicians and medical providers. And that's hit in some states, but uh, not all states. And so it is clearly an enforceable provision in most states that you have to pay attention to. And then the other thing that I've seen recently in a few is they actually have kind of a buyout provision. So they're already thinking ahead to, all right, if you want to get out of this and buy yourself out of this non-compete, here's the formula. And it's some sort of uh, percentage of your last year's you know, gross income or something. And so if you are negotiating with a new employer down the road and you say, yeah, I have a non-compete, but it can be bought out for $50,000. And so, you know, maybe you give me a $50,000 signing bonus and I can take care of that. And so it's kind of nice to have those buyout provisions to have some clarity. Um, and in some markets, you just kind of, if you go to an, a healthcare attorney in a certain market, they'll be able to say, oh, it's going to cost 200000 for you to get out of this. That's kind of the going rate, whatever, you know. And so uh, just understanding kind of what those consequences might be if you want to get out down the road. Steve, you mentioned the enforceability of non-competes and, and how there's this national movement. 
What is really driving that? Is there one thing you can really put your thumb on the button and say, this is why there's a push for kind of non-compete reform? Well, with the growing scarcity of physicians uh, in the country, each year it seems like the need for physicians is greater and greater and we have fewer coming into the practice. That leads a legislature to say, hey, we can't have a physician uh, a productive physician sitting on the sidelines for a year to wait out some non-compete. We need all the physicians we can get right now. And so as a matter of public policy, we're going to declare non-competes unenforceable against medical providers. It's really a response to the feel for that scarcity. And so some states with a greater lack of physicians per capita uh, are more inclined to pass legislation like that, but it's um, really something that's in almost every state legislature all the time. It's just a matter of how much traction it gets. Yeah, or how limited they are. I know in our, our home state of Indiana, that's been presented multiple times over the past few years and quietly disappears when it comes time to <laughs> take a vote. So wonder why that happens or wonder who who's behind that. But yeah, that is interesting because uh, you know, speaking to attorneys or, or businessmen like myself, the cost of switching is very low uh, as far as switching jobs and switching mm-hmm. careers. But it's not like we're going to take a physician who's invested 10, 12 years of their life and say, great, you're now a financial analyst over here for a year. Being a doctor is kind of what you're all about. And so being forced to sit on the sidelines, especially right now in the middle of a, the worst pandemic in 100 years, it, it does seem a little counterintuitive. Uh, mm-hmm. so to speak. So uh, from my standpoint, kind of rebelling against the healthcare world, you know, I, I am encouraged to hear that, but I know not everybody out there is, but um, you know, there's always, I don't know if you guys read about this, but it was interesting. They did a study um, a couple of decades ago of why Silicon Valley exploded the way it did from a innovative and kind of an entrepreneurial standpoint and compared that with like the research triangle and, and the Boston area and they found that California, um, actually going to praise California here on their, their forward-thinking laws, since they didn't have any non-competes um, ever in any industry, they found that the level of in- innovation skyrocketed compared to other areas. And I'm thinking, well, guys, you know, this has already been done before. Why can't we just you know, do this everywhere and kind of look at actually what, what has succeeded? But if I were king for a day, you know, there's a couple <laughs> things to, <laughs> to change out there. So yeah. do you guys, do you guys ever have an issue with uh, physicians signing a lot of agreements and they don't even read them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, either not reading them or not fully, you know, taking the time to appreciate how, you know, they work on a kind of an intricate level. So I think, I think we see that we work with some physicians from, you know, time to time and help them understand what's in their employment agreements. I mean, I think that there's, you know, key areas that you need to understand, you know, and, and, and the, the non-competes one of them, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what are the termination rights, um, you know, under what circumstances can you be terminated? You know, a lot of people might sign an employment agreement and say, well, it's a four-year employment agreement. But if you look at it, it says, well, the employer can terminate you on 30 days notice without cause at any time. So, that's not a four-year agreement. It's a 30-day agreement, you know, technically. Wow. You know, so some things like that uh, are, are really important to understand. Just how, how much of a uh, commitment do you have from the, the person that's employing you? Now, uh, I think hospitals and physician groups will say, you know, yeah, we need the right to terminate you without cause, but, you know, we never really would 
truly terminate you without cause. That's not in our best interest. Um, that doesn't you know, make any sort of business sense for us. If things are going well, we're going to keep you. But what we want, don't want to have to do is establish the ability to terminate you for cause because that's going to result in litigation mm-hmm. and uh, will be expensive and, and difficult. Um, and there is a lot of different, you know, kind of twists and turns on that too, because there's a lot of reasons why a physician would not want to be terminated for a cause. Because if that happens, uh, that's something you often have to disclose on like a, a medical staff application and things, things of that nature, right? So there, there's, there's just a lot of kind of uh, twists and turns, like I said, that go, go into that. But I mean, it, that's a very important topic under employment agreements that you'd want to make sure that people focus in on. Um, you know, compensation, as the compensation formula actually work? Sometimes it gets really complicated, you know, um, and particularly, you know, as you go to move maybe some towards some more um, value-based or quality-based um, compensation models, those might have a lot more discretion built into them than um, do, you know, a more traditional just kind of productivity-based uh, compensation formula. So I think, you know, those those are, are obviously, you know, <laughs> important uh, things to understand. Um, another thing I would say, too, is just um, practical things about, like, um, what's my schedule going to be? where am I going to be have to work? Because if, if you work for a hospital and it says we can send you anywhere, we have a hospital and that means, and that means the entire state of Indiana or wherever else, well, that might result in a very different um, sort of practice for a doctor than, than um, they would anticipate if they were thinking, well, I'm going to be working in, you know, this particular location. So I think specificity on location can be an important, you know, thing to make sure that, you know, is, is, reflected in an agreement. So some key areas that I would really counsel physicians to make sure that they understand what they're, what they're uh, signing up for. And, 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 you know, the ones I ran through are the ones that are top of mind for me. Steve, I don't know if, if you think I missed anything there. Just, just the compensation piece, a new physician will usually have a guarantee for year one and maybe year two. And so that's easy to understand. You know, you're going to get X amount this year and X amount next year. And then you're going to switch to our uh, compensation policy. Well, <laughs> the compensation policy is, you know, yo thick and, and it can be changed at any time by the employer. And the only comfort you should get is that, hey, this system is employing, you know, a thousand physicians. So if they change the methodology to make everybody unhappy, then, you know, they're going to lose a lot of physicians. So there is strength in numbers when you're put on some sort of a large compensation uh, plan, but you're right, it gets very complicated. And then some physicians are concerned that there's a certain percentage, like 15% of their compensation looks like it's at risk because it's based on mm-hmm. achievement of quality metrics or customer service or whatever. Well, those are actually usually, you know, good things. You know, th- those are ways to get above and beyond your base compensation if you can complete this, this, and this. And so, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to have some amount at risk. That's actually was put in there by the larger employers to give the physicians a little bit extra incentive. Yeah, and usually you hear about those at risk as, well, the doctor doesn't work themselves to death because some of these goals are unattainable up there. And I'm glad you brought up the compensation because from what I've experienced in in working with some physicians trying to exit the employed system and go back into private practice, they couldn't make heads or tails of it. Or a lot of them thought that they were selling a practice. And it always fascinates me when a a physician says, well, I'm going to sell my practice to a larger system. And I'm like, 
Well, great. What type of multiple did you get? Did you do revenue or just do your, your bottom line income, your EBITDA? And I said, well, no, I just, I just got a big signing bonus and I, I you know, decided to switch out the logo on my white coat. And I'm thinking, well, that's not really a practice <laughs> sale. Like it's, <laughs> you're, you're just becoming yeah. an employee somewhere. So it's interesting just how that vocabulary and kind of uh, how that just evolves into meaning something com- completely different here. So along those veins, let's, let's kind of switch gears into private practice. When a physician is looking at starting up a private practice, what are the biggest pitfalls that they could potentially run into? And I'm looking at somebody who's going to be fee-for-service as well as somebody who might be in our realm, more of a direct care realm, and you know how those compare and contrast. So I'll say one experience I've had from some solo practitioners is that they've gone into business and in full disclosure, I'm a billing compliance attorney. So I suppose to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But to me, they hire some coding and billing company to help them submit the claims with absolutely no oversight and understanding. And maybe they'll pay them a percentage of their revenue. So, you know, it incentivizes the coders to upcode. And and and, and yeah. when an audit comes down the road, and, you know, the physician says, well, I don't do the bills. My, this company over here does the bills. Well, you signed them. <laughs> and so you're, you're accountable for those claims. So that's something that I think you, you really need to pay attention to is get a, a legitimate, uh, reputable uh, billing uh, and coding company to help you do those or uh, either outsource it or hire a certified coder to actually submit those claims. But then the the enrollments are really uh, challenging to manage, to be enrolled in all of the plans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, there's a, a big initiative right now to prevent surprise uh, medical bills. And that that's all about physician practicing at a hospital that's not participating in a plan that the hospital is participating in. So a patient is seen at the hospital and then gets some services from a physician who's not in that plan and bills as an out-of-network provider. And that's a big shock because they have a higher copay and um, higher deductible. So, you know, making sure you stay on top of enrollments is, you know, a huge thing. And it's going to be important in the future as, as part of this initiative to eliminate surprise medical bills. Surprise medical bills are, are an issue. Have you guys seen any any traction or movement or are you involved with some of the new transparency prices, pricing schemes and, and mandates that are coming into hospitals? Yeah, I I never thought they would they would happen. <laughs> you know, I, can't, I I mean it, we're still it not, seemed... we're, we're still not sure that they will happen. Right. They're supposed to happen. Right. Uh, I mean it's hard for me to believe that providers are supposed to disclose their negotiated um, prices with different plans publicly. I mean, I thought, I thought that information was supposed to be uh, private from a antitrust perspective, mm-hmm. but so it's, it's still hard to believe that some of those uh, pricing transparency initiatives are going to go forward, but nothing's stopping it now. It seems to be having traction from both sides of the aisle think that this is a good idea. So um, it's a real struggle. I think a lot of providers are really challenged with complying with some of these new uh, new programs. And so it's another reason why being in private practice is a, a challenge because <laughs> you don't have all the, the support and resources that a larger system would have to comply with some of those things. 
on the, on the transparency side, it's interesting what you just said, Steve. So, I mean, it would seem like, you know, we counsel clients all the time about, you know, for they're going to, you know, if they're going to sell their practice or they're going to do, you know, maybe we're looking to do some joint venture or something like that, that payer rates are competitively sensitive and we've got to be very careful about how we disclose those. So the, in the context of transactional due diligence, so that we don't violate antitrust rules. So if, if there, that's a, you know, if there's legal, you know, initiatives out there to say, hey, you have to disclose that information. I guess there's going to have to be some development on that, uh, you know, antitrust laws too, to permit that. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. It's one of those unforeseen kind of uh, potential consequences because on the surface of it, I mean, I'm a huge free market medicine advocate and that's really what we do is, Hey, every client of ours puts their prices up on the, uh, up on the website there. So what I'm hearing is that it's almost creating an incentive for area hospitals to further you know, potentially price gouge or set even higher prices than what you know they've negotiated with insurance companies. Am I hearing you correctly? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are the kind of aggressive language there, but the United States government is, is uh, infamous for unintended consequences of pretty much any law that gets passed. So. Yeah, I... Steve knows more, has forgotten more about this than I'll probably ever know. But um, one thing I'd say is that all hospitals have like the charge master list, right? It says this is how much this costs, but nobody pays that rate ever, right? It's, 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 they pay some fraction of that based upon whatever they've negotiated with the various payers or if it's Medicare, Medicare. And, you know, I think what we typically would think is that, the only people that ever pay that charge master are like people that don't have insurance, but then the people that don't have insurance basically just don't pay. So, you know, I mean, maybe that's oversimplifying it, Steve, but that that's kind of what I've always understood. Yeah. I mean, there have definitely been steps on the hospitals on the provider side to address that issue by, you know, requiring hospitals to offer an uninsured discount And the gap is not as significant for physicians. You know, physicians tend to mark up a lot less than hospitals do. And so what their charges are usually are more in line with what they're actually getting. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, price transparency with the the little margins in a physician practice is probably going to have less of an impact than in the hospital and the uh, provider uh, areas, unless a physician is doing something like, you know, also has some MRI equipment, and you know that's an example of something that's very competitive. And if they actually have to show on their website what they're getting from payers and what you know different um, patients their their coinsurance responsibility is, then a physician might not be able to compete with a large radiology practice that's able to get volume and have a much lower price than what an independent physician might have. It is fascinating. It'll be interesting to see what kind of transpires here in the next couple of weeks. Gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break, hear back from some of our podcast sponsors. And then after that, let's dive into the world of what medical practice looks like when you don't do business with insurance. (laughs) Stay tuned after this. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized 
by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, Green Imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one-third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs, and employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. Welcome back to the second part of our discussion here on Healthcare Americana with Ike Willett and Steve Lokensgard, partners at Fagery, Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. This section is going to really focus in on the direct care world and what happens when a physician enters private practice but opts out of doing business with a government and opts out of doing business with private insurance and how life could potentially get a little bit better. So Ike, start us off there. When a physician wants to do a direct care practice and says, I'm no longer doing business with CMS, the Centers for, for Medicare and Medicaid, what happens from a regulatory standpoint? Well, your life has the potential to get somewhat less complicated from a healthcare regulatory standpoint. And that's the case on a number of fronts. If someone truly enters into a practice where not only are they not doing business with Medicare or Medicaid, but they're also not taking commercial insurance. They're not in network with any plans and they're not submitting any claims electronically, which is generally the requirement to any health plan, commercial health plan. And you're, tr- you're truly doing kind of like a cash pay practice. Things that you know are pretty pervasive in healthcare suddenly become not so applicable or maybe not applicable period to you. You know, one of the things that physicians are, you know, often have questions on and uh, are interested in is, when does HIPAA apply to me and under what circumstances might it not apply, right? So, um, you know, first of all, HIPAA is the the federal law that uh, applies to the uh, privacy and security of protected health information, protected health information being basically any information that is individually identifiable such that, you know, you, you could you conceivably identify who the information relates to and it relates to their, their healthcare condition. Generally, that's the definition. Anybody who does business with Medicare, Medicaid, or commercial payers, you know, can generally count on that um, it being the case that they need to comply with HIPAA um, because the way the law is drafted that it's, it's going to, it's going to cover them. 
um, as, as covered entities, as, as healthcare providers, which, which are, are considered covered entities under that law. Now, if you totally dis- if you totally opt out of all of that and you're only doing cash pay, then you know I, I think the way the law is drafted, it wouldn't really it wouldn't be uh, applicable to you. Now, that's not to say that there's no legal or other laws related to uh, privacy and security that you don't have to be concerned about, though, because there are still state laws, uh, and the state laws uh, can be more broad and and more restrictive than than, than HIPAA. They can't be less restrictive uh, if they you know in, in terms of you know applying in the same way, but um, you know, there, there, are, there are state laws that, that uh, you still need to, you know, make sure you understand, like, you know, just because I'm doing a, a full, you know, cash pay business, does that mean that I, I don't have any state law compliance obligations? And that may be the case or may not be the case, depending on the state. But as it relates specifically to HIPAA, if you're only doing cash pay business, then your, your compliance burden is less and your exposure to, you know, p- you know potential penalties for, for violations of the law under HIPAA you know, maybe somewhat are completely removed, but there are still very important reasons why you would want to uh, make sure that you have good practices in place for maintaining privacy and security of, of your patient information, um, because there are other there are other legal you know rights of action that that people can bring to alleged damages, and, and some of those are based in, in negligence theories, which you know are kind of the same as like um, um, we call them torts in the law. So you know if if you're um, damaged in some way by somebody, by, by their personal negligence, that can result in liability to you. So if a, a doctor is negligent with somebody's medical information, talks about them, you know, to somebody that they shouldn't be talking about, they can allege some damage based upon that, then there's potential source of legal liability there. Um, so HIPAA can be complicated and, you know, it requires you to have a compliance program and things like that. So if, you're, if you don't have to comply with HIPAA, you, well, you don't have to do that. But there's still good reasons why you'd want to have good practices in place to make sure that you're maintaining privacy and security of, of your patient's information in a, in a reasonable way. Right, right. Steve, let me, let me jump in right there because I know that uh, you have some comments on that. But I just wanted to make sure that kind of summarize and, and, and simplify that, that, you know, when you are no longer in government programs and you're just charging cash, meaning you're not sending information electronically for reimbursement, HIPAA in the regulatory aspects that it brings doesn't apply to your practice, yet you still have to be very cognizant of your patient privacy. So don't leave charts out and don't talk about your patient health information at your kids' soccer games or anything along those lines. Steve, is that is that a fair kind of simplification yeah. Of, um, very good answer that, that Ike just gave us. Yeah, I, I think that a big initiative for our firm in the last couple of years has been helping a wide variety of clients comply with the California Consumer Protection Act, CCPA, which is uh, also very stringent about how you deal with patient information. So it's a state law that's applicable to folks in that state, whether you're a healthcare provider or not. The other thought I had about a cash-only basis is you got to kind of jump out or jump in. You can't put your foot in the water a little bit and bill a Medicare patient for some services but not others because once you're enrolled in Medicare, if you see a Medicare patient, you have a duty to submit a claim Mm -hmm. to Medicare for that service, and you have a duty to accept as payment in full the amount that Medicare is going to pay you. So you can't you can't opt out on a case by case basis. You got to get out or in. Opting out usually and historically has meant that once you opt out, you can't come back in again for two years. 
But during the public health emergency, HHS waived that and said, hey, if you've opted out, but want to get back in again, let us know and we'll activate you immediately because <laughs> of the physician shortage. You know, they need physicians to come back uh, as much as possible. So opting out right now, at least, doesn't have the same kind of consequences as it, as it used to. And um, I would say, you know, some practices, it's easier to opt out than others. Some specialties like a fertility doc, very few services would ever be covered by Medicare or Medicaid. So typically they opt out. They're not involved in that. And uh, even dentists, you know, it's funny, Medicare doesn't cover dentistry. But more and more Medicare Advantage plans are providing dental benefits as a supplemental benefit. So suddenly all these dental, dental providers are saying, how do we play in this Medicare sand? You know, <laughs> what do we have to do? And um, the fact is, it was clarified in the last year, the dentist doesn't have to enroll in Medicare. They just can't be on the OIG exclusion list or the CMS preclusion list, and they can still participate in a Medicare Advantage plan. So I don't know how many dentists listen to your podcast, Chris, but a, a little nugget for the dentists in the audience. <laughs> I, I love it. Actually, there's a lot of, there are a lot of dentist practices installing membership plans. People are just used to consuming services that way nowadays. And mm -hmm. I don't know if we credit Netflix for it or, you know, go back to <laughs> the very first Gold's Gym that started charging a monthly fee or whoever it was. I, I yeah. know, but, you mm -hmm. know, I, I don't know if that's that mentality where it's like, okay, rather than, you know, just paying... 300 bucks for a dental service. I'm going to stretch this out and go on the, go on the payment plan. It is rising in popularity. Yeah. A lot of primary care physicians who we mostly work with um, starting to get into specialties because they're starting to get squeezed, you know, from, from reimbursements and all that kind of crazy stuff. A lot of them look at veterinarians and dentists uh, with a lot of jealousy thinking, dang, people are very quick to fork over $3,000 for a dog surgery, but don't want to pay a dime for their own health. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, another one is, is, is um, orthodontists. I mean, I, I don't think they think of it as a membership plan, but basically you pay, is they, they say it's going to be this and you, you can pay us up front and you can pay us 400 bucks a month for whatever, you know, for whatever long it is, mm -hmm. right? So you're paying in installments, you know, and it's all cash, basically, you know, that you don't get a ton of, most of the don't cover a lot of orthodontia. It's a work. perfect point. And, and a lot of people, and again, you know, with, with the incoming administration, a lot of people are pointing towards, you know, single payer healthcare, Medicare for all, thinking that market forces in healthcare don't exist anymore. But those are great examples of where there is very little government or insurance intrusion. And people are very happy with their braces, I guess, usually, you know, unless you got the headgear that needs cranked down. That's never fun socially. I wish somebody would pay for my daughter's braces other than me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. See that? Well, I think you're going to start a revolution on your own there, right? Um, so, <laughs> Going back to the and 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 I appreciate the the HIPAA commentary because that's always just the boogeyman out there is what about HIPAA because I don't think a lot of people understand it they think it's this wide ranging and it affects anybody who ever talks to a doctor and it's just not the case right well right I mean it, it actually applies to a much narrower scope of people than I think a lot of people think about at least a couple times a year I'll get a call from a client that's not even in the healthcare industry at all and doesn't provide services to the healthcare industry and is asking me, do I have to worry about HIPAA? And those can be pretty short conversations because we can explain to them that HIPAA applies to two classes of parties, covered entities and business associates. Covered entities are healthcare providers 
who submit electronic claims for reimbursement. And then there's a couple others, a health plan or a healthcare clearinghouse. Those are your three kinds of covered entities. And then you've got your business associates. And business associates are people or companies that provide services to covered entities that require them to use or have access to protected health information for some reason, right? So that's who's covered by HIPAA. If you're not in those categories, you're not covered by it. It, it's it's very simple when you say it that way. It's not this overarching constant presence when you look mm-hmm. at it from the fundamental definition of it. So, you know, I, I'm curious because, you know, that was a real life story. We, we had a prospect call us up and says, I can't do direct care. I can't do my own practice because I'm terrified of HIPAA compliance. And I'm sitting here scratching my head thinking, what do you know that we don't know or that, you know, some very, very great healthcare attorneys, experts in the field don't know, you know, and I think there's just a lot of misconceptions about it. So I appreciate you really shedding some light on it. What is it about HIPAA compliance that scares people so bad? I mean, to me, I, I I guess it's just a hard to maybe get comfortable with complying with a technical set of federal regulations and and just uncertainty about that. Um, I think one of the bigger things too, that, is an issue for particular smaller practices is what's the cost of compliance, right? Like, so we've got to pay somebody to, to develop a compliance program for us, a set of policies and procedures. And then, you know, every so often we've got to get a security audit, which means you know, paying somebody thousands of dollars to come in and assess our security, uh, our IT security and our physical security. Yeah, I get that. If you can avoid having to do that expense, you know, that might be attractive. Still want to be careful about you know things, but, um, but yeah. yeah. So, Ike, um, on the issue of compliance more broadly, uh, you may recall we did a deal a couple of years ago where we were consolidating a couple of physician practices, and typically you don't have to have a compliance program if you don't participate in Medicare and Medicaid, right? Mm-hmm. The Affordable Care Act said. If you bill anything to Medicare, you have to have a compliance program. Well, this deal that Ike and I worked on a couple of years ago, we were getting funding from JP Morgan to um, invest some, some capital into this practice. And in their loan documents, they had a paragraph that said, within 90 days of receipt of these funds, you will develop and implement an effective compliance program. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it had nothing to do with some government mandate. It was the bankers trying to mitigate risk of this company going under because of some compliance violation. So to a certain extent, I think some of the things that people are afraid of is just good business risk mitigation practices. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think there's a, there's a fear there that what if federal agents show up at my door and it, nobody wants that, right? Regardless of what type of practice you're in. And I think those are kind of the, yeah. the, uh, the ghost stories that always pass between physicians is one, I got sued by a previous employer, previous hospital came after me for non-compete and two federal, I don't know, Medicare agents came armed with machine guns to <laughs> look over all my files. Cause you know, somebody complained. Yeah. Well, you know, with, with, with HIPAA, what, what happens is most of these issues uh, you know, get on the government's radar because um, there's some whistleblower, a whistleblower brings it to their attention. Right. So, you know, somebody thinks that they've known that there's been some violation of, of the law or they think that there has been. And so they, they call the Department of Health and Human Services and, if it's HIPAA, it's the Office of Civil Rights within the, the Department of Health and Human Services. And they say, hey, these people have violated HIPAA. 
And what that leads to generally is you get a call from the, the OCR and an investigator wants to ask you some questions, right? And so hopefully those conversations can be you know pretty short if you've done what you need to do and, and uh, you can get away you know, relatively unscathed. Um, but I mean, there are plenty of cases out there where people have been either, you know, intentionally misusing or, you know, uh, uh, protected health information in some ways prohibited by law or, you know, are just very negligent about it. And then, you know, there is the possibility of, of government fines, you know, in that case. Also, you don't want to discount the risks associated with um, private rights of action. You can't, an, an individual can't go and sue somebody for breaking HIPAA, for, for violating HIPAA. There's no private right of action under HIPAA. But there is the ability to bring like a case based upon some a negligence theory, like we mentioned earlier. So there's been some big cases um, that have involved large companies paying significant sums to individuals um, because an employee of that company disclosed that individual's protected health information in a way that caused them reputational or emotional you know damage in some way. And a plaintiff's lawyer would you know love to bring that case and say. This is a public disclosure of private facts and, you know, we've got damages and you need to compensate us for us. So that sort of uh, risk is is one to to definitely take seriously because I don't know if it's more likely, but it's at least as likely in my mind to result in uh, legal liability or financial penalties as as something coming from the government. Sure. So it's almost like the fear is misplaced and instead of the government coming in and and, and raiding your practice, it's more... I need to make sure I'm hiring reputable people that don't steal people's information from the EHR and, you know, blast it out on Facebook or in, in social media there. So, right. And train your people, you know, tra- yeah. train your people to, to, to make sure that they know what they're doing. I mean, Steve is a expert on um, compliance. And when you have a compliance issue, you always have to figure out a way to remediate it. And training is always a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, in, 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 um, as much as I'm enjoying this this uh, this interview, I know you guys are, are some very very busy professionals here. But <laughs> wanted to ask, you know, so we talked about the direct care and opting out of Medicare and what that does to HIPAA. Are there any other big time kind of boogeyman laws, such as like a Stark Law, Sunshine Act? I guess the question: is, How does how do those other regulatory matters? How are those impacted by not doing business with the government? Yeah, I mean, if you're not billing claims to Medicare, then Stark and the federal anti-kickback statute are irrelevant. But just like we talked about with HIPAA, there are state laws. Um, in my home state of Minnesota, we have a state law in the books that says, regardless of your participation in Medicare or Medicaid, the federal anti-kickback statute applies to you. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, even if you're in private practice and you're not participating in Medicare or Medicaid, you still can't give kickbacks to get patients in the door. Now, that statute's never been enforced in Minnesota, (laughs) but we always tell people about it, say it's not necessarily the cure-all to get out of uh, Medicare to survive scrutiny. So, you know, there are state laws that you have to be aware of, but in general, at least the federal government shouldn't be involved if you're not billing Medicare or Medicaid a good basis is understand what's going on within your state. And mm-hmm. maybe, just maybe, a, uh, a pharmaceutical rep can leave a pen behind and bring your office lunch <laughs> if you don't do it. <laughs> just maybe. Yeah, you, probably, 
You, you don't have to, if you're not taking Medicare, you don't have to report that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. For all those uh, pharmaceutical reps out there, go tell all your clients about direct care and you can start bringing them sure, yeah, back into sure offices. <laughs> make sure your pens are cheap too. <laughs> yeah, cheap pens. I used to collect them as a kid. You know, I, I had these mugs full of, of uh, pens that, that reps would leave at uh, my parents' practices. And, you know, it was a great oh. little hobby until that, <laughs> that, that dried up real quickly there. So last question for you guys here uh, before we adjourn. Anything coming down the pike that you're aware of in 2021 from a federal or even, you know, state guidance levels that uh, we should really be aware of in the, the direct care and the physician community? Well, Steve's been all over some recent changes in, in the law that um, – you know, maybe irrelevant to, to direct care, but maybe worth mentioning. Yeah, well, I feel like all of the the changes to Stark and anti-kickback law are trying to open up more creativity and uh, innovation in terms of how you help your patients. And so, you know, it's freed up the ability to give certain incentives to patients to get them to take their medicine or come in for their preventive service. You know, there's, there's more tools in your toolbox now to get patients to facilitate compliance and encourage compliance. But also something that we talked about earlier is the value-based enterprise. And there was a commentary in the anti-kickback statute about, well, you should have an exception for physicians in private practice who can't implement a value-based enterprise system and take advantage of some of these rules. And CMS came back and said, well, we don't think that's necessarily the case. We don't think an exception because we think even a solo practitioner can create a value-based enterprise and take advantage of some of these rules. So they didn't really buy that. Uh, So it's kind of a head scratcher to figure out how you can do that, but it is possible, I think. But being part of large networks is just going to continue to be the wave of the future and difficult for solo practitioners who aren't competing in some of those networks and some of those plans. Is it, and I know I said that would be the last question, but you just kind of sparked something. Should physicians be worried that in the midst of the pandemic, the agency level from the feds, they changed a lot of things with the stroke of a pen to actually make access and, and make caring for people a little easier. Does it worry you that with another stroke of a pen, things could swing back the other way? Well, that's what I thought about HIPAA. Speaking of HIPAA, because HIPAA was passed and finalized before Clinton left office. And then the Bush administration came in and said, we're reopening for comments, (laughs) HIPAA. And they came out with something that was kinder and gentler and a little bit more flexible for compliance purposes. But, you know, that stood the test of time for 16 years now. So, I mean, yes, things, things can change, but it's a hard, it's hard to move that pendulum the other way. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate your time coming on the show to talk with us. Steve, Ike, always uh, always good to talk to you and, and really do appreciate your insight. And uh, again, thanks for thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank thanks, you. Chris. Yeah, best of luck. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks again for listening to Healthcare Americana. To catch all of our episodes, visit healthcareamericana.com. And of course, to learn more about direct primary care or direct care, as we like to call it, visit freedomhealthworks.com. Thanks so much for listening. 
Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. New Era Health Plans brings a unique solution to health insurance. We offer private insurance that allows you the freedom of choice of any doctor, any hospital, anywhere. New Era offers modern, flexible health insurance, life and supplemental, Medicare and education resources. We are a national agency licensed in most states. New Era emphasizes educating our clients and helping people make smarter decisions that deliver value and peace of mind. Our plans allow our customers to save 25 to 50% each month while providing transparent health benefits at a price that actually makes sense. New Era Health Plans is committed to providing the best service to self-employed business people, individuals, and families. We are an endorsed vendor of the Free Market Medical Association and believe in the power of free market medicine. For more information, visit NewEraHealthPlans.com. New Era Health Plans, modern, flexible health insurance plans. New Era Health Plans, Inc. is an independent field marketing organization representing Philadelphia American Life Insurance Company. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at PatientsRisingConcierge.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.